Deborah Perry told me of the story of how she got into politics. And as she said, it began in October of 1960 when her mother took her and her two brothers to see a presidential campaign rally with Senator John F. Kennedy. They arrived very early. They were the first ones there, and they were right in front of the podium. Barbara, her two brothers, and her mother, and kind of in awe of the Kennedy family. That began a lifelong fascination with politics as well with the Kennedy family. She continued on her fascination with politics, and after a high school field trip to, to Washington, D.C., she went home to her mother and said, one day I'm going to see myself, or I'm going to go up to Capitol Hill, and that's where I want to work. Well, that dream did come true, and she did go back to Capitol Hill. She's living proof that childhood dreams and those early impressions do make a difference. She went back to Capitol Hill with internships and fellowships in all three branches of the government. With a master's degree in, from Oxford and a PhD from University of Virginia, Barbara has become a specialist in, this, in the office of the presidency, the Supreme Court, and of course, the Kennedy family. Barbara currently serves as a senior fellow in the Presidential Oral History Program at UVA's Miller Center. She is the author of nine books, including one on Jackie Kennedy and her most recent book that we have for sale today on Rose Kennedy. Please join me in welcoming Barbara Perry, who is living proof that childhood dreams can come true. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Cindy, so much for that wonderful, wonderful introduction, so innovative. And uh, I have to say, my mother, I think, is on high looking down and smiling and very happy today. And, and thanks to her uh, for taking me to that rally. And she would say, don't you remember we stood right in front of the podium? I'd say, mother, I was only four. <laughs> so I, I remember the balloons and the confetti and the crowds and the excitement of the people. Uh, but I'd say, I, I can't remember what Senator Kennedy said. So I actually went back over the years and looked up the speech, and it was a pretty standard campaign speech. So what we want to do today is talk a little bit about the different facets of Rose Kennedy's life. And indeed, we want to talk about imagery, because this book is not just a biography of Rose Kennedy, though it is that, but it's also the biography of her image. Also, I want to tell her story, and you notice I underlined her, because so often in her history, she has been overwhelmed by the men in her family. First her father, the famous Boston mayor, Honey Fitz, for whom President Kennedy was named, then her husband, Joseph P. Kennedy, then her three sons who went on to fame in politics. Also, what can possibly be said that's new about Rose Kennedy and her family? And I'll tell you that in just a moment. Also, I want to talk about her political contributions, which were prodigious, but for which I don't think she gets enough credit. Um, certainly in her family she does, but not necessarily from historians. Also, her prodigious philanthropy. Uh, and we'll talk about that and how she got involved in that. A little bit about the private Rose. What didn't we know about her that I was able to discover when they opened her 250 boxes? of archives at the Kennedy Library in 2006, which is how I got into this project. And then finally, a little bit about her legacy. Some 50 years after Camelot, uh, what has she left to us? I wanted you to pause a moment, if you will, and think about your memories, your images of Rose Kennedy. Well, first of all, the family really starts to come into the public consciousness in 1937. This picture is taken just about this time. This is the one on the far left. This is when her family was complete with her nine children. 
all the way from Joe Jr., who is in the upper right-hand corner of that left-hand picture, and then little Teddy, who's about six years old in a sailor suit sitting on his father's lap. So Rose's family is complete. They're just getting ready to embark on what would be her real introduction as an adult mature woman into the world of politics and fame. And that is, as the family got ready to leave to go to pre-war London in 1937-38, when Joe Kennedy was named by FDR to be the ambassador to the court of St. James, which was not a very positive experience, we should add for Joe Kennedy, but more on that in a moment. I would say that Rose's uh, highlight is in the middle here. This is a companion picture to the one on the front of my book. It was taken in December of 1962. Mrs. Kennedy and her son were at, a, at an international awards banquet, the very first one held for international research into mental retardation, a very important issue for the Kennedy family because Rose's eldest daughter, Rosemary, was diagnosed with what was then called mental retardation in the 1920s when the child was about five or six years old. And Mrs. Kennedy had just been introduced by the master of ceremonies at this dinner, who was Adlai Stevenson, and he introduced her as the most powerful employment agent in the nation because at this time, her son Jack was the President of the United States, her son Bobby was the Attorney General, and son Teddy had just been elected to the United States Senate. And then on the far right, many people's imagery of Rose. From November 25, 1963, she stands at the gravesite of her son at Arlington Cemetery, a portrait, an utter portrait in stoicism and grief. And so many people think of Rose as the ultimate stoic Catholic woman uh, who, whose faith got her through the many tragedies that she faced in her life and that of her family. Rose lived to be 104. Uh, she was born in 1890 and died in January of 1995 of pneumonia uh, after a series of strokes had really made her an invalid for the last 10 years of her life. Now, as the mother of the president, there are a number of images that, that come to mind for me, for Rose. Um, the first one is up in the top left-hand corner. Anybody know what that is? It looks like a shriveled something. It is the coconut, the famous coconut on which Lieutenant J.G. John F. Kennedy wrote his SOS message in the Solomon Islands after his PT boat had been sliced in two by a Japanese destroyer in the middle of the night. Two of his mem crew members were killed outright. The other 11 survivors, plus Kennedy, uh, were led by him for a week. The west of the, the hulking uh, portion of his a PT boat sank, and so he took the crew and caused them to swim three miles to a nearby island while he towed one of the crew members who had been so badly burned the man could not swim. And so for the rest of that next week, they eluded the Japanese and were finally saved by an Australian coast watcher after Kennedy handed this coconut with an SOS message carved with his service knife on the hull of it. And he brought this coconut home, and his mother said, you must save it. It is so important you must save this coconut. And Jack Kennedy did. He didn't often listen to his mother, but he did that day. He saved the coconut, and it ended up going with him all the way to the Oval Office, and it sat on his desk as a paperweight. So lesson one, number one, always listen to your mother. <laughs> on, the, on the left here is, again, a highlight for Rose. In September of 1963, she was asked by Jack, her son, who's in the middle of the picture here in white tie and tails, to serve as the substitute hostess at the White House for the state dinner for Haile Selassie. And he is right here in the picture. So here's the president. Here's Rose Kennedy. They've just had um, their, their entertainment for the evening, and they are in a receiving line. And Rose is thrilled to be the substitute first lady. And you might say, well, where's Jackie? Jackie had just left that day for a cruise in the Mediterranean. 
September 1963, the previous month she had lost a baby, a premature baby named Patrick, had lived only two days and then succumbed to a lung ailment. And Jackie was so depressed that the president said, you really need to take a vacation. So Jackie went with her sister to the Mediterranean to cruise the Mediterranean with Aristotle Onassis. More on that in another time. <laughs> this note is one that, in addition to the 250 boxes of archives that I sifted through, I also discovered private collections of Rose's papers and letters online, and I was able to acquire them. And this is one that is very typical of Rose. She sent it at this very time that she was staying at the White House with her son in September 63. And you'll notice that it says in her very distinctive handwriting, Dear Mrs. McNamara, this is the wife of the Defense Secretary. And you'll also notice up at the top, the White House, Washington. From the moment Rose began to know important people, she, number one, as a child, began to collect autographs from important people, and two, whenever she stayed in a famous or historic home, she would send notes on the stationery from that historic home to all her friends and family. But she was writing a thank you note because Mrs. McNamara had included her in a tea for Haile Selassie's daughter, who's mentioned here, Her Highness Princess Ruth Nesta. This is how Rose wanted us to know her. And right now, Althea is going to help me give you a little video clip that'll last about three minutes from a documentary that Rose helped to produce in 1974. At the just Kennedy as Homes in We will have it here. So watch and see how Rose wants to be known. Um, this is in the early 1970s. She's being interviewed um, by um, Robert McNeil, uh, first in her home in Hyannis. And we're going to see at the age of, at this time, she would have been in her early 80s. First of all, notice how she looked, um, how she wanted to be known, and how she is going to be interviewed. And keep your fingers at crossed. At the Kennedy the Homes in Palm Beach and Hyannisport, talking with her about the life and family, the triumphs and tragedies that millions of people around the world have lived through with them. Boston was a bustling, prosperous city, and as one writer put it, awesomely self-satisfied. It gave birth not only to the American Revolution, but the economic prosperity which followed. In mid-19th century, it absorbed thousands of desperately poor Irish, escaping from death in the potato famine. One of these was a farm laborer from County Wexford called Thomas Fitzgerald. One of his 11 children fought his way to the top. John Francis Fitzgerald, known as Honey Fitz, became mayor of Boston, and Rose Fitzgerald was his eldest child. She was beautiful, poised, well-educated. She spent a year abroad studying French and German. Her debut was marked by a civic holiday. But for all her charms and her father's success, the Fitzgeralds were still Boston Irish, and the doors of old Yankee society were closed. Well, we just grew up thinking that the um, Yankees, as we call them, were in one group and the Irish Catholics were in another group. And it was understood. And I knew when I grew up that I would not be admitted to their clubs. And I knew I was well, as well educated as any of them. And uh, at my debut, I had all Catholics. And then you'd marry a Catholic. In some ways, it was much easier. Rose found an Irish Catholic fiancé whose immigrant grandfather had been as poor as her own, 
whose father was as determined as hers to be accepted by the Boston Brahmins. Young Joe Kennedy already had one foot in the door. He had been to Harvard. My father didn't think I should marry the first man who asked me. And, uh, and still I was very much in love and still I didn't want to uh, offend my parents. So we used to have these rendezvous <laughs> that were um, rather music. <laughs> yes, clandestine. How did you arrange those? <laughs> well, as the moment arose, we, uh, we used to have dance orders in those days, you know, little cards where your dancing partners put their names for different dances. You'd have perhaps, I don't know, 15 or 20 dances. So he had fictitious initials that he put on so pe people wouldn't think that he was monopolizing my whole part, uh, which of course I recognized. The favorite one was S.S. for Sam, Sam Shaw. And then uh, we used to meet after lectures. I used to go to lectures and then just meet him by chance, coming home, we'd walk a good deal in those days. And we still walk. They met just by chance. Wink, wink. Um, isn't she amazing? Again, she's probably about 84 at that point. She is perfectly coiffed and perfectly turned out, as she always was. Rose's image, her own personal image, how she appeared, always was paramount. And she was forever talking to her children about how they should look perfect as well, much to their chagrin. So she grew up in the spotlight, even at this age on the far left, which, by the way, d does she not look like the perfect Victorian child in, in her headdress uh, and in her coat uh, on the right there with her brother and, and younger sister? Uh, but she was in the spotlight from that moment on because her father, Honey Fitz, was a member of Congress uh, in the 1890s from Boston when Rose was growing up. And then at about age 16, as you'll see her here, um, she began to work with him as he became mayor of Boston because her mother was home taking care of five younger children and she was an introvert. Rose was more like her father. He, she was an extrovert, so she loved to campaign with him. And in this photo, she had gone to Philadelphia to christen the Bunker Hill, a ship that had been named for the famous battle in her hometown. Then she began, as she got into the Gibson girl era, so now she's a, an older teenager, she's with her father, Honey Fitz, who has the, the hat over his heart. They are at a Boston parade. This is about 1910. And she's surrounded by her younger siblings. But again, no sign of Mrs. Fitzgerald. Mrs. Fitzgerald is home, uh, apparently, uh, cleaning house rather than taking care of the children that day. But Rose is just smiling, beaming uh, as the Gibson girl in, in this photograph. But at age 16, and this is, this is Rose in a very Victorian bathing costume, uh, she is at Old Orchard Beach, Maine, and she meets the love of her life, Joseph Kennedy, uh, who's on the far right here in this photograph, also in his Victorian bathing outfit for, for men. She was utterly smitten with him. He was very tall and lanky and had bright red hair and blue eyes and a beautiful smile, and she just fell head over heels for him. As she said, her parents did not approve. Her father had picked out another beau for her, a boy from the neighborhood he wanted her to marry. But you know what happens when parents don't approve of, of, a, of a young person's beau. That person only wants to, to have that beau even more. So even though Honey Fitz sent Rose away to a Prussian convent for a year, uh, she only pined away for, 
or let's just say she didn't become a nun, but she became the top student in the Prussian convent because whatever, whatever Rose did, she had to be number one and she had to be perfect. And so her big day arrived uh, in October of 1914. She became Mrs. Joseph B. Kennedy. And woe to anyone who would refer to her as Mrs. Rose Kennedy in a letter. She would write back and say, excuse me, I am Mrs. Joseph P. Kennedy. Now, you probably know that the marriage was not perfect. As Rose wanted herself and everyone around her to be, her husband was not perfect. He was a serial philanderer, as had been her father and some of her sons. Uh, she had to put up with the fact that she no doubt knew that when her husband went to uh, Hollywood in the 1920s to become a producer, he took up with Gloria Swanson. And Gloria Swanson was uh, the person he was managing, uh, but he was also having a torrid affair with her. Rose only one time in the three years Joe was in California went to visit him. She returned pregnant with her eighth child, soon to be at one point, Ambassador Jean Kennedy Smith. But at the, at shortly after this period in 1932, in another of the letters that I found, Rose writes, I have had quite an interesting life. My husband was quite successful in the movies, and we went out frequently with Gloria Swanson and other stars. This is how Rose, in the pre-Oprah era, dealt with her issues. She would not say that she didn't know Gloria Swanson, but she would pretend that there was a legitimate friendship among her husband and herself, so that it would appear to be legitimate. This is how Rose dealt with political gossip for the rest of her life. Now, by 1938, as I mentioned to you, she's on the world stage. Her husband is in pre-war London as the US ambassador to the court of St. James. Only three weeks after Rose arrives in 1938 in London, she finds herself with her husband spending the weekend at Windsor Castle. So what does she do? She gets out the stationery and she writes to her friend Marie, Joe and I are leaving in the morning after a very brilliant weekend. We had Sunday dinner with the two little princesses. Who are they? Who are the two little princesses? the current Queen Elizabeth and her younger sister, Princess Margaret, and then she refers to the king and the queen, so that was King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, the current Queen Elizabeth's mother. And Rose concludes, they are all charming. <laughs> so I promised you what's new. Well, it's, it's my, my brother said, well, did you find out Rose was a pole dancer? No, I'm sorry, I didn't find out anything scandalous such as that. Um, however, I have, as a scholar, I think developed a pretty new theory about Rose Kennedy, and that is most people give Jacqueline Kennedy, her daughter-in-law, the benefit of having developed the Camelot label and imagery shortly after her husband's assassination in 1963. I say you can back it up to the 1930s and the 20s when Rose literally produced her family of nine children and then attempted to make them as perfect as possible, at least in terms of how they looked. So this is a photograph of the entire family in 1938-39 at the American Embassy uh, as Joe in the middle of the family, as rightly he should be. I don't mean to indicate or overstate Rose's role in the family, but she was the, the stage manager of the family, whereas Joe was the executive producer. He's the center of gravity in the family. You'll notice he's almost always in the center of the photographs with the family gathered around him. But here is Rose, literally the queen of Camelot in her tiara um, for this photograph. Now, Rose has a very unique style, and Althea is going to help me um, with this as well. So again, keep your fingers crossed for the um, technology gods. We're going to show about just a two-minute uh, clip here, so two and a half minutes, of Rose campaigning eventually towards the end of these two minutes with son Bobby. And this, is, this was produced by NBC when she turned 100.
the last 20 years or so, the idea of devoting one's life exclusively to marriage and children has lost some of its luster. In the last 20 years or so, the idea of devoting one's life exclusively to marriage Technology and children guys, has lost some of its luster. The majority of American women are doing the two-job tango, trying to fit family maintenance into career ladders and learning curves. Well, today we mark a centennial, a celebration of a woman who's a living reminder that being a wife and a mother are the single most challenging and important of callings, a woman who has left an indelible mark on this century. And who knows better than our colleague, her granddaughter, Maria Shriver. Hello again, Maria. Good morning again, Mary Allison. Thank you. You know, when I think of home, I think of this place, Hyannisport, Massachusetts. I have spent every summer of my life here, a lot of it on this porch with my grandmother, Rose Kennedy. This is her home. It's where she's lived a lot of her life, and it's where she lives today. But she always made all of her grandchildren, all 30 of us, feel as though it was our home as well. She's just that kind of woman open, inviting, gracious, and always at the center of all of our lives. All of us have come back here this weekend to help her celebrate her 100th birthday, and what a life it is to celebrate. When Irish eyes are smiling, sure it's life on in spring. From the very beginning, Rose Kennedy was special special in the eyes of her flamboyant father, Honey Fitz, the mayor of Boston. Special to young Joe Kennedy, who fell in love with her the moment he laid eyes on her. And special to her nine children and their children, who saw her as a woman of strength, love, and unshakable faith. She always was, and still is, one of a kind. Some people enjoy a life that's sort of normal and mediocre and... Uh, other people like respond to challenges and adventure and attainment. That's who we are. When she was a young girl, politics were her passion. As her father's constant companion at political rallies and on the campaign trail, she was known for her charm, her social skills, and her intelligence. Her father knew then what her sons would later discover. When it came to politics, she was the family's secret weapon. It's a great pleasure to introduce my seventh child, Robert Francis Kennedy. Yeah, I know. I'm going to tell him you did. Well, why don't you give your own speech? See, that's there. We don't My brother and I never. The reason she's never introduced any of us before is because we never go on the same platform with her. We couldn't possibly compete with that. I just love those la that last 30 seconds because that is Vintage Rose. She just couldn't help herself. Even though Bobby was running as an adult man in his 40s for the US Senate from New York, she just couldn't help herself but come back to that. Be sure to tell them about your experience. And he was perfect. He was perfect in doing that banter with her because what was his reputation at the time but ruthless? They called him ruthless. So this way, it kind of humanized him to have this. Everybody knows what it's like to have your mother giving you advice about things. So it was just perfect. And if we go back to 19, um, 
1952, the top uh, left-hand corner here, excuse me, right-hand corner, Rose is already campaigning with Jack. She had started campaigning with him in 1946 when he first ran for Congress as a war veteran. And at this point, he's, he's literally on crutches from his bad back. And as Rose put it, the women just crowded around him. In 1952, he wasn't married yet. So she said the younger women all wanted to marry him and the older women wanted to mother him. And she represented that maternal aspect on the campaign trail. By 1960, if you'll notice on the left here, she's with Jack at the Democratic Convention in 1960 in Los Angeles. Where is Joe? Do you notice he's not anywhere on these photographs? Joe is politically toxic because of his poor showing in England in the pre-war London era because he was viewed as an appeaser, as an anti-Semite, uh, as someone who was completely politically toxic. So he was pulling the strings behind the scenes with his money and his political strategy, but it was Rose who was able to go out and represent the Kennedy Fitzgerald clan on the campaign trail. So whom did Jack pick to go with him when he accepted the nomination that night but Rose? And she's even doing that kind of queenly wave from, to all the people out in the audience. And then finally, this picture down in the, the lower right-hand corner is of Rose campaigning in 1970 for Teddy, with Bobby, who is by this point, um, sadly, has been assassinated in 1968, Rose is with her eldest grandchild, Kathleen, Bobby's eldest child. Where is Teddy? She's campaigning in 1970 for Teddy and, and the US Senate. Teddy's in a picture, okay? Notice down here, with his then beautiful wife, Joan, and three lovely children. Why isn't Teddy on the campaign trail? He drove off a bridge, thank you ma'am, drove off a bridge and sadly killed a woman, not his wife, who was with him that night at Chappaquiddick. And so, you know, it's sad to say in, in, in people Twitter, but it's, it is the case that Rose was getting memos that I found in her papers from Teddy's staff. Please, Mrs. Kennedy, please come out and campaign for Senator because Teddy needs you. He needs you in 1970 out on the stump. He said, they said, especially with the elder people in the, in the state because his reputation has been ruined. So here's Rose out on the campaign stump, the perfect person trying to re-perfect Teddy. Rose, whatever media came along, she was there. So you noticed her pictures from the newspaper when she was growing up. Uh, when radio came along, she actually gave an address for Franklin Roosevelt in 1940 to promote his third term as president. Uh, then the newsreels came along while she was in London, and she was happy to do newsreels. And then when television hit the scene in the 1950s and 60s, she began to do television. The Kennedys did their own campaign ads. And then Rose loved talk shows. So remember all of these people with their syndicated talk shows, Dinosaur on the right. Here's Rose, who loved to play the piano, and she'd go on and play Sweet Adeline, which was her dad's campaign song, Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas. You can find most of these on YouTube. And they're just amazing windows into the psyche of Rose Kennedy. What I found in her papers was right before she would go on these shows, she would write her own script. She would write the questions she wanted to be asked, and she'd write the answers she wanted to give. And she would send that to the host ahead of time, hoping that he or she would follow the script. Occasionally, they would depart, and you'd see Rose kind of shift uncomfortably in her chair, but usually she'd, she'd follow along and answer. And again, there are windows into her psyche, because when they do depart from the script, which was, by the way, primarily about mental retardation, research into it, and fundraising. This becomes part and parcel of not only a way to campaign 
for her sons, but also to raise money for her charity. And again, why was it that that, that was her life's work in philanthropy? Well, it was because of her daughter, who's pictured here, Rosemary, and her other daughter, Kathleen. Rose is in the middle. This is in May of 1938. She is getting ready to leave the embassy decked out in her most beautiful attire with her daughters in their evening clothes, they are going to be presented to the king and queen at Buckingham Palace. And this picture is in the book, and it's a little bit hard to see perhaps, but Rose has got her careful eye on Rosemary. Rosemary had an IQ we think of about 70. Uh, it may be in this day and age she would be described as having a learning disability, uh, suffering from depression, possibly epilepsy. But this was all very foreign to the Kennedys and the experts in those days. And when they diagnosed this child in first and second grade as being mentally retarded, Rose had never heard that term. The experts said, the only thing we can tell you is institutionalize this little girl. Rose could not bring herself to do that. She and Joe had enough money to have tutors come in and have caretakers for her. And they even, the Kennedys mainstreamed before anybody ever did that. They mainstreamed this child. And so now in her late teens and early 20s, she goes with the family to London and she's even presented to the queen, king and queen of Buckingham Palace. And yet in 1941, Joe, without con consulting with Rose, subjected Rosemary to a lobotomy. It was a procedure that at the time was thought to reduce anxiety and depression, and it was accepted, an accepted medical practice, and it went badly wrong, and Rosemary was infantilized. And all of the work that Rose and the family had put into raising Rosemary to mainstream her was now all for naught. And the one thing they didn't want to have her institutionalized, she was institutionalized from that moment on until she died in 2005 in her mid 19 in her mid 80s. Rose then went about this cause of her life, raising money for mental retardation. The family founded the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Fund and, and foundation for their oldest child, Joe Jr., who was killed in the war on a, on a secret mission in 1944 when his plane exploded uh, over England. And so this is Rose with Bobby, who's now senator from New York in 1966. They're breaking ground for the Rose Kennedy Center for research into mental retardation uh, at Yeshiva University in New York. So we're gonna have one more clip. This is an audio clip from the Miller Center. This is available on the website at the Miller Center. And by the way, there are uh, Miller Center newsletters for you outside. This is November 22nd, 1963. The president has just been assassinated. Rose has just been told this horrible, devastating news by Bobby that the president has succumbed to his wounds. And about an hour later, Lyndon Johnson, the new president, calls Rose Kennedy at Hyannis Port from Air Force One. You will hear the audio and you will see the running transcript. Uh, AF1 from Crown, uh, Mrs. Kennedy on. Go ahead, please. Uh, hello, Mrs. Kennedy. Hello, Mrs. Yeah. Kennedy. Uh, we're talking from the airplane. Can you hear us all right? Over. Thank you. Hello. Uh, yes, Mrs. Kennedy, I have uh, Mr. Johnson for you here.
She's the one with the stronger voice. Lady Bird is the one who's becoming emotional. Her voice is breaking. And even though Rose had that very thin, reedy kind of Boston accent, and she began to have uh, chronic laryngitis in her later years, but she's the one that's holding firm. She's the one who's stoic. And do you notice what she calls Lyndon Johnson? Mr. President. Even the steward who's putting the call through from Air Force One with Lyndon Johnson right there says, it's Mr. Johnson. He can't bring himself yet to say it's President Johnson. But Rose Kennedy, always perfect, always the wife of the diplomat, she's already gone on. And it's now going to be Mr. President to Lyndon Johnson. And then imagine five years later, the same thing happens. And as she said in her own memoir in 1974, if this had been written in fiction, people would say, well, that could never happen. But once again, her beloved son is taken from her by an assassin's bullets. And so where in the, the day, November 22nd, she kept saying, why, why? She was out walking on the beach of Hyannis. The nurse at the family, who was now taking care of Joe, who in 1961 suffered a devastating stroke and was virtually struck mute until the end of his life in 1969, Rose just kept saying, my son, my son. The nurse just kept hearing her over and over utter, my son, my son. And this photograph is of Rose at St. Patrick's Cathedral in 1968, June of that year, for Bobby's funeral. And Rose said the only way she got through was through her faith and to imagine the Blessed Mother. And she said, I just kept thinking of the Blessed Mother at the foot of the cross and how she stood there and kept vigil uh, over her crucified son. And she said, that's the only way I got through seeing Jack's casket at the funeral uh, at the Capitol and Bobby's at St. Patrick's in New York. Now, in searching for solace, she wasn't perfect. She did go to Mass every day and say the rosary every day. But she was only human. And so at night, she found she had nightmares. She couldn't sleep. She had insomnia. So she began to take sleeping pills. And I found in her travel lists, in her documents, that she took a whole pharmaceutical cornucopia with her when she traveled abroad. She was very much tied to pharmaceuticals to get her through sleeping pills, anti-anxiety medication um, that would try to help her. You can see the sadness in her face, the top left-hand photo here. This is with Marc Chagall, the artist uh, in the, at the Riviera in May of 1964. She just began to, she always liked to travel, but after all these tragedies, she traveled even more just to get away. But she said, I'd go to Paris, and people would remember my son, and they would come up, and they'd break down into tears. And so here she was trying to get away from all of her pain and her grief, but people would always remind her uh, of her sons. When she turned 80, she went to Addis Ababa. She traveled 25,000 miles to visit with Haile Selassie, whom she had hosted in 1963 at the White House. They discovered that they had almost the same birthday, the end of July. And by the by, I know that Rose Kennedy would be so thrilled that this year on her birthday, July 22nd, the next king of England has been born. So Rose now shares her birthday with Prince George of England. So here she is curtsying to Emperor Haile Selassie. She was very proud that at age 80, she remembered how to curtsy from the Prussian nuns in the convent. And so she spent the rest of her life then cementing the legacy of Camelot that she had helped to create, as I say in the book. On the left-hand side here is a photo of Jack's room at Harvard in Winthrop House. 
uh, that has been owned now by the JFK Institute of Politics at Harvard. Rose went back in the late 60s and dedicated it to the president, and it has now uh, been refurbished to look as it did when he was there, though I'm sure it's much neater now than when he lived there. Um, I actually had the honor of, of staying there when I was doing my research at the Kennedy Library, and I must say I felt a bit haunted by the spirit of, of President Kennedy. On the right is Rose uh, breaking ground for the Kennedy Library in Boston. Some of you may have been there. It's at Columbia Point in her old neighborhood of Dorchester. She's surrounded by Caroline, John Jr., and Jacqueline Kennedy on the far right. And then as we come to the end, this is Rose's legacy. When uh, in, in, in her, her son was killed in 1963, she took over. She bought the house he was born in in Brookline, Massachusetts. And she had it completely refurbished and sent back to the 1917 date on which he was born there. And then she turned it over to the American people. She gave the deed back to the American people. And on that day in 1969 at the dedication, she said that what you do with your child can influence not only him, but everyone he meets. And not for a day or a month or a year, but time and eternity. And that was what Rose hoped would be her legacy to her family and to her country. So I want to say thank you so much for your attention today. And I would be happy to entertain your questions. So we have microphones. Yeah, we microphones. Have a question I can back bring here. a question back. Okay. Uh, did Rose ever make it to Charlottesville? I know the uh, Bobby, Jack, and Ted were here. Was she ever down here when they were here? Yeah, so, so the question is about uh, Bobby uh, and and Teddy. Uh, certainly, did their law school careers here. Um, Jack came to give talks, to give speeches, um, particularly in 1958 when Teddy was a student here. He asked his senator brother, Jack Kennedy, to come down and give a um, speech to the law school. So we know that all three brothers uh, were here, and Bobby and um, Teddy, for a long period of time. And also, both Bobby and Teddy married while they were at UVA, so they brought their new brides back. So they brought Ethel. Bobby and Ethel came back and lived here, and Teddy and Joan came and lived here. I have not found any indication that Rose came to Charlottesville. If anybody knows that she did, I am happy to entertain that. Um, but I could not find anything in her papers that indicated that she had or anything in her memoir that indicated that she had come to Charlottesville. Um, it wouldn't have surprised me if she would have wanted to come uh, and visit her sons here, but it also wouldn't have surprised me if they would have kept her at arm's length <laughs> because, as you could see, she could be a nudge. Uh, she could be an annoying mother and mother-in-law because she was forever writing letters if she couldn't see them in person. She would literally cut pictures of them out of magazines and newspapers, and she would circle their fashion faux pas. And then she'd send that back to them and say, next time, do better. And so the people who actually took that the best were the in-laws, because I think the kids by that time were really tired of her nattering at them. So someone like Sarge Shriver, she literally did that. She cut his picture out of the paper, and she said, his, um, his, his shirt cuffs didn't hang out far enough from his suit coat. So she circled that, sent it to him, and he wrote back, Dear Grandma, because by that time she had many grandchildren. She said, Dear Grandma, I'm sending all my suits out to be altered. So next time you see me, I will be doing much better. And she reminded him she'd had to tell President Kennedy the same thing. So it wouldn't surprise me if she was not here very often. 
Yes, the question is, how did Rose Kennedy handle the philandering of her husbands and, and husband and sons? Well, I mentioned to you how she dealt with the Gloria Swanson situation, which that she attempted to legitimize it and just indicate that she and, and Gloria Swanson and her husband were friends from Hollywood. So what, what Rose would do would take something terribly inconvenient and uncomfortable and try to make it convenient and comfortable and legitimate. So that's how she did, dealt with that. She also just left her husband for long periods of time. She would just go and leave him, even when the children were young. Uh, she would leave the, her husband to have to take care of six, seven children at a time. Uh, she had plenty of household help, and they also had a couple, uh, one of whom uh, Ted Kennedy was named for, Edward Moore and his wife, who had no children. They were like surrogate parents to the Kennedy clan. So she would just leave. I also think that was part of birth control for her. She was a staunch Catholic. Imagine if she hadn't traveled so much how many children she would have had. Uh, as far as her sons were concerned, she never mentions that in any of her papers. She um, never mentions it in her memoir except for this. She says that when my daughters-in-law came into the family, I cautioned them that they were in a political family and political families are often subjected to political gossip. And I told them that that's all it is. It's just political gossip. That happened, she said, to my mother. It happened to me. And it will happen to you. And so again, she takes something that really is true that's happening, and she makes it untrue in her mind and for public consumption. Yes, ma'am. One more? Oh, and we need a microphone here. Oh, we'll get to you just momentarily. Yes, First, I want to thank you. This has been spectacular. Oh, thank you um, for being I was here. lucky enough to grow up in the North Shore of Boston, and so my paths have crossed with the Kennedys, many, many of them. And I was lucky enough to go into um, uh, the Hyannis home of Rose and Bobby Kennedy's home for a coffee with my mother-in-law, et cetera, et cetera. But I would like to know what her influence was on Jackie. Oh, yes. What was Rose's influence on Jackie, Jackie Kennedy Onassis? From the moment Jackie arrived at that Hyannis home, um, she, and this was as the girlfriend and soon-to-be fiancé of Senator John F. Kennedy, we know that Rose was giving her advice because Jackie wrote to her future mother-in-law, Dear Mrs. Kennedy, thank you so much for your advice. Thank you so much for telling me what kind of engagement ring I should get. Thank you for telling me how I should stand when I'm being photographed because <laughs> Rose Kennedy, and we, we all should remember this when we're being photographed, Rose told everyone to stand at angles to the camera because it makes one look thinner and, and put one, at least one hand behind one's back. So she had told Jackie all of these things and you can see Jackie trying to be the good future daughter-in-law by thanking her future mother-in-law for this advice. Now, you can also see in the whole run and gamut of their letters back and forth that there are times that Jackie gets perturbed, um, particularly once President Kennedy has passed on and Rose is trying to stage manage Jackie and stage manage the Camelot imagery. And so she's saying, but now by this time, Jackie's remarried to Onassis. That, as you can imagine, was difficult for Rose. Uh, and so Jackie's living abroad and they open the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, and they're going to have a dedication. And Rose writes to Jackie and says, you need to be here. And then she uses the worst kind of pressure, Jack would have wanted you to be here. Okay? Jackie writes back, dear grandma, I can't do this. 
I'm just so tired of having to go and be in the spotlight and to be the widow Kennedy. I need to be here taking care of my children. I'm so sorry, you're going to have to represent the family. Oh, well, that's perfect to say to Rose because she loves the spotlight. And so Rose talks at length in her letters and diaries about, oh, I was in the spotlight at the dedication of the Kennedy Center, and I got to sit in the president's box, and wouldn't Jack have been proud? So forget Jackie, I'm here. As those years passed, Jackie and Rose, I think, have a thaw in their, a detente in their relationship. And you can see in the letters that they grow warmer with each other. And Rose very much appreciated that Jackie welcomed her when she would visit abroad because Rose wanted to keep in close contact with Caroline and John Jr. and tell them about their father. And so Rose says that to Jackie, thank you so much for letting me be with John and Caroline. Thank you for welcoming. And then she also had a very warm relationship with Aristotle Onassis. And there's some wonderful correspondence in the papers that I mentioned in the book about that. So thank you. And how lucky for you that you got to spend time in that area. We have a question here. Well, as a non-Camelot fan or a, a Camelot sure non-fan, uh, and having grown up in the West, mm -hmm. I always saw the Kennedys as privileged elitists. And so it, it's interesting to me to hear people laugh about a woman you would have wanted to kill if she were your mother-in-law. <laughs> and uh, probably sometimes the children would as well. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me that Rose Kennedy is admired and people laugh when they hear I mean, that she writes you about how you stand and wear your clothes. And yet other matriarchs, if you wish, for instance, Barbara Bush, get bad press. Mm -hmm. So I'd just like you to comment to some extent on the fact that, you know, and Joseph Kennedy's really repellent political positions when he was the ambassador of the court of St. James all kind of get brushed over. So, Well, as you'll notice, and, and of course the question is a, a very good one, about the opposite side, what, what Seymour Hirsch wrote in his book, The Dark Side of Camelot. Uh, and again, there may be many of you who subscribe to that and, and feel that way about it. In my book, I take a very balanced approach to Rose, mostly by letting her speak in her own voice. And, and it's not always very gratifying. And I interviewed her, her now only surviving of the nine children, Jean Kennedy Smith. And as you can imagine, she's carrying on the torch of her mother, which is that her mother was perfect. Now, this is all about imagery. So your comment about the Kennedys seeming to be elitist, uh, pampered people, they were. They were. When they grew up out of the shanty Irish and became the wealthy nouveau riche Irish, they put that behind them and they became elitist. And many people, as you can imagine, as I go out and speak about this family, there is a love-hate relationship with the Kennedy clan around this country and around the world. So it's the same with Franklin Roosevelt. If people look back at Franklin Roosevelt now and think, oh, you know, the sainted Franklin Roosevelt, he did win re-election in 1936 with two-thirds of the vote. That means one-third of the American people not only didn't vote for him, they hated him. So this is typical in American politics, that we have ideology enters into it, personality enters into it, uh, what people did that was good or bad in this instance. Ted Kennedy, after Chappaquiddick, went on television in Massachusetts and said to the people of Massachusetts, 
I've done something bad and wrong. If you want me to leave the Senate, I will. And do you know that loads of letters came in saying, don't leave the Senate. This is after this man had caused the death of an innocent young woman. So this book is about the image. It's not to say Rose is a saint. It's not to engage in hagiography or to engage in a fawning portrait of her or her family or even that image, but rather to say, here is the story of how this woman added to that image. And then people who accept the image can say, oh, isn't that interesting? This is how Rose helped to create Camelot, which maybe other people assigned to Jackie. And then those like yourself and others who have a negative vision of that image and say, gee, wasn't that image papering over a host of flaws and ills? And in fact, I've just written for the Fredericksburg newspaper uh, a retrospective on Kennedy, that Jack Kennedy, that they're going to publish right before the 50th anniversary of the assassination next month. And I end it with a phrase that says, Rose Kennedy said to her children from the Gospel of St. Luke, um, from those to whom much is given, much will be required. And Rose used to say, my sons could have lived as playboys, but instead they served their country. Well, they did serve their country. One gave his life for a country. One almost gave his life for a country in the war. And then two gave their lives for their country in politics. But it doesn't mean that they were perfect or that they weren't living as playboys while they were serving their country. So I say in the very last sentence of this piece that Jack Kennedy lived up to some extent to that St. Luke adage by not being a full-time playboy, but rather serving his country in part. But I said he didn't think, nor do many members of that family think that the ordinary rules of life apply to them. And so I said, what that caused him to do was behave recklessly, which in some ways accounts for his epic achievements and his prodigious flaws, is how I put it. Do we have time for one? One more? One more? Yes, ma'am. Or one? Oh, 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 we, have, we can do more. Okay, yes, ma'am. with a small d. Oh, a big d. Oh, the question is, to what extent was Rose Kennedy sincere about her democratic beliefs, and you mean big d, democratic party beliefs and ideologies? Rose was not an ideologue. Uh, she was not a practicing politician. She was good at stump politics. She was good out on the stump. And that's why her sons wanted her there, but didn't want to be with her because she was annoying. So she was really great at grassroots politics, going back to her father and being at her father's side in grassroots politics. She was a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, a Massachusetts Democrat with a big D. Back to this woman's point, I'm not sure I would say she was a Democrat with a small D, because as she grew up and grew out of the immigrant stock, when she came, she became elitist. And that is also very clear in her papers. So she wasn't a politician in terms of policy. She was not an ideologue in terms of democratic ideology. But I think she considered herself, rightly so, a lifelong big D Democrat. And Doris Kearns Goodwin talks in her book, The Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys, or The Kennedys and the Fitzgeralds, about Joe toying with the idea of becoming a Republican in the 1920s because 
he had earned so much money. He made his millions on Wall Street before it was regulated and out in Hollywood as an executive producer. And so he began to think about being a Republican. And according to Doris Kearns Goodwin, it was Rose who said, don't leave the reservation. So she was very much a staunch, big D Democrat, but not an ideologue and not a policy person within that construct. There was a question. Got one over here. Oh, one moment, yes. I just have a quick question. Um, you mentioned the daughter who had a lobotomy and was institutionalized. Did, did uh, Rose ever go and visit her? Or can, can you sort of speak yes. to that? For yes, me? that's a great question about Rosemary, uh, her eldest daughter, uh, born in 1918 at the height of the Spanish flu epidemic. We don't know if that might have had something to do with it. Also, Rose gave birth to most of her children at home under fairly primitive conditions, even though by that time they were certainly in the middle class and she had a doctor with her. But it's possible that something went wrong in the birth process. They, they never knew why Rosemary had this low IQ, suffered from seizures and depression and anxiety. Um, but after her lobotomy, and as I say, she was institutionalized by Joe Kennedy, Rose and the whole family were told by, uh, her, by Joe Kennedy that she couldn't be visited because it would set her back and it would upset her. So Rose, who had given her life to helping this young girl be mainstreamed as best she could, and teaching her how to play tennis, and teaching her how to dance, and teaching her how to swim, and teaching her how to be presented to the king and queen at Buckingham Palace, did not see her daughter, we think, for the first time until the late 1950s. And so that whole period of time passed with this ache in the heart of Rose Kennedy. And she told Doris Kearns Goodwin at one point, that's the only thing I can't forgive my husband for. So apparently she forgave his philandering, but she couldn't forgive what he did without consulting her to their daughter Rosemary. Some of the most poignant correspondence in Rose's papers, as you can imagine, are from Rosemary. Uh, before she had the lobotomy, there are loads and loads of letters to her father and to her mother and they look to be, uh, even when she's in her late teen years, from a child in grade school. Um, she has trouble writing. She could never graduate to cursive writing, for example. Um, Rose changed her handwriting. So that very distinctive handwriting you saw on the screen, Rose changed her handwriting so it would be easier for Rosemary to read. Uh, and then Rosemary is very aware when the war begins, she's the last child left behind. The Kennedys all go home except for Joe and Rosemary because she's thriving in England. They found a wonderful convent for her there, and she was thriving. And she was writing to her dad, I'm so glad I'm the last one here to take care of you, Daddy. And she was so thrilled because she didn't have to be in competition with these eight other competitive, again, somewhat annoying siblings. So she was very, very pleased to be there. Then when she has the lobotomy, there are very few letters from her, just a few childlike scribbles to her parents. But Rose is writing to her during that period, and certainly after Rose begins to visit with her. But it's very typical of Rose. She would go out to Wisconsin to the institution where Rosemary was based, and she would stay for maybe only a day or so. And she was really concerned that Rosemary have a mink coat. You just want to say, Rose, that's not what Rosemary needs. Rosemary needs you. You know, she needs her mother. Then as Rose aged and she was having trouble traveling, she did write to the nuns, the caretakers in Wisconsin, and say, Is there, do you have a convent near me at Hyannis? 
because I would love to have Rosemary closer to me. So in Rose's later years, she almost wanted to gather her daughter closer, probably as well as that Rose was losing her children one after the other. They were all leaving her and leaving her life. So that might have been another reason that she reached out. But those just tore at my heart. Again, you, you, know, you can have your views about these people politically or the mistakes that they have made and did make, um, but that's just a mother missing her daughter and being very upset at what had happened to her. I think yeah, we have one, one more question. Okay. I was growing up in Ireland uh, when Jack Kennedy. <gasps> That's uh, your green shirt. Uh, that's right. I'm, I'm <laughs> Instead of orange. <laughs> I'm refereeing a rugby game here later, <laughs> later today. <laughs> um, uh, at UVA against NC State. For, oh, for those Gophans. of you who want to see a real football game. <laughs> <laughs> the way real men play. <laughs> that's right. Without padding, I was told. So I was. That's true. Um, so I was growing up in Ireland when Jack. Kennedy came, <gasps> came to Wexford and yes. uh, had a cup of tea with his, his long-lost cousins. And there was, the whole country was just on fire. You just could not believe the, the tremendous adoration that was uh, thrown at his feet. And um, uh, my question is, I, I never heard of Rose ever having come to Ireland or what kind of relationship she might have had with the Irish people. Because in my estimation, she had, uh, out with, her, with her elitist background, she had probably outgrown what was available um, socially in Ireland um, beyond that point? All good points that you're raising. And there is a, a lovely book that was written about two years ago by, uh, I understand, an Irish chat show host um, named Turbridy. And it's JFK's trip to Ireland. So it's an entire book about the three days that he spent in Ireland in June, I believe it was, of 1963. This was at the same time that he went off to Berlin and gave the famous Ich bin ein Berliner speech. So he was making a, a tour, if you will, um, through Europe at that time. Um, so yes, he, he according to uh, his closest aides, he re-embraced his Irish heritage because what had his father done by taking the family out of Boston in the mid-1920s? Jack Kennedy only lived in Boston for his first 10 years. And then the family was removed by Joe Kennedy to go to New York to get away from the Yankees, as Rose called them, the, the Brahmin Yankees, who, of course, did not like and were very prejudiced against the Irish Americans. So they, Joe sent his kids to Protestant prep schools, to Harvard, to the sons, to get them out of their Irish roots, if you will. So really, <clears throat> Jack Kennedy re-embraces his Irishness, as it turns out, at the end of his life. He doesn't know it. And, in, and as he leaves Shannon Airport um, in 1963, he says, I will return in the springtime. Um, and a few months later, he's gone. Rose, there are wonderful pictures of Rose um, traveling. She loved to travel uh, even before she was married. She traveled uh, throughout Europe with her father, uh, as well as down into uh, Central America. Um, but there's a great picture of Rose with her dad at the Giant's Causeway, which I love, in, in Northern Ireland. And then she would go back um, with her daughter Kathleen after the war, because Kathleen, much to Rose's physical illness, uh, married a British and Protestant nobleman that she had met before the war. He, Billy Hardington, was killed by a Nazi sniper in uh, September 1944 in Belgium. But Kathleen held on to his family's home, which, what, one of which was called Lismore Castle uh, in Ireland. And so Rose went after the war with Kathleen. She made up with Kathleen um, and went back there to visit um, Ireland and, and writes a beautiful letter to Joe, who's at home in the United States, about the countryside of 
of Ireland, and she says it's, it's like Glockamora from Finnegan's Rainbow. And she says, it, it just reminds me so of Glockamora. It's idyllic to Rose. And so I think in that sense, she's sort of re-embracing her Irish roots, but embracing them in the way that Kathleen did by marrying an English nobleman, <laughs> an English Protestant nobleman. Sadly, Kathleen was killed in an airplane crash in 1948 after she had ma made up with her mother. But she had also taken up with another Protestant, another um, to the manor born uh, British man uh, who was still married at the time. And so she would break her mother's heart again once more before she was killed in the plane crash. So I'm told we must stop, but thank you so much for your wonderful attention and your questions. <laughs>